Chapter Eleven, Part Two of Ten Days That Shook the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Beck. Ten Days That Shook the World by John Reed. Chapter Eleven, Part Two. The response from the whole country was like a blast of hot storm. The insurgents never got a chance to say openly their opinion to the masses of workers and soldiers. Upon the Seika rolled in like breakers the fierce popular condemnation of the deserters. For days Smolny was thronged with angry delegations and committees, from the front, from the Volga, from the Petrograd factories. Why did they dare leave the government? Were they paid by the bourgeoisie to destroy the revolution? They must return and submit to the decisions of the Central Committee. Only in the Petrograd garrison was there still uncertainty. A great soldier meeting was held on November 24th, addressed by representatives of the, all the political parties. By a vast majority, Lenin's policy was sustained, and the left socialist revolutionaries were told that they must enter the government. See next page. The Mensheviki delivered a final ultimatum, demanding that all ministers and yunkers be released, that all newspapers be allowed full freedom, that the Red Guard be disarmed and the garrison put under the command of the Duma. To this, Solmny answered that all the socialist ministers and also all but a very few yunkers had already been set free, that all newspapers were free except the bourgeois press, and that the Soviet would remain in command of the armed forces. On the 19th, the conference to form a new government disbanded, and the opposition one by one slipped away to Mogilev, where, under the wing of the general staff, they continued to form government after government until the end. Graphic Announcement, posted on the walls of Petrograd, of the result of a meeting of representatives of the garrison regiments, called to consider the question of forming a new government. For translation, see Appendix 11, Section 6. Meanwhile, the Bolsheviki had been undermining the powers of the Vigsel. An appeal of the Petrograd Soviet to all railway workers called upon them to force the Vigsel to surrender its powers. On the 15th, the Tsayika, following its procedure toward the peasants, called an all-Russian Congress of Railway Workers for December 1st. The Vigsel immediately called its own Congress for two weeks later. On November 16th, the Vigsel members took their seats in the Tseika. On the night of December 2nd, at the opening session of the All-Russian Congress of Railway Workers, the Tseika formally offered the post of Commissar of Ways and Communications to the Vigsel, which accepted. Having settled the question of power, the Bolsheviki turned their attention to problems of practical administration. First of all, the city, the country, the army must be fed. Bands of sailors and red guards scoured the warehouses, the railway terminals, even the barges and the canals, unearthing and confiscating thousands of poods of food held by private speculators. Emissaries were sent to the provinces, where with the assistance of the land committees they seized the storehouses of the great grain dealers. Expeditions of sailors heavily armed, were sent out in groups of 5,000, to the south, to Siberia, with roving commissions to capture cities still held by the White Guards, 
establish order, and get food. Passenger traffic on the Trans-Siberian Railroad was suspended for two weeks, while thirteen trains, loaded with bolts of cloth and bars of iron assembled by the factory shop committees, were sent out eastward, each in charge of a commissar, to barter with the Siberian peasants for grain and potatoes. Kaladin, being in possession of the coal mines of the Don, the fuel question became urgent. Smolny shut off electric lights in theatres, shops and restaurants, cut down the number of streetcars and confiscated the private stores of firewood held by the fuel dealers. And when the factories of Petrograd were about to close down for lack of coal, the sailors of the Baltic fleet turned over to the workers 200,000 poods from the bunkers of battleships. Toward the end of November occurred the wine pogroms. See Appendix 11, Section 7. Looting of the wine cellars, beginning with the plundering of the Winter Palace vaults. For days there were drunken soldiers on the streets. In all, this was evident the hand of the counter-revolutionists, who distributed among the regiments plans showing the location of the stores of liquor. The commissars of Smolny began by pleading and arguing, which did not stop the growing disorder, followed by pitched battles between soldiers and Red Guards. Finally, the Military Revolutionary Committee sent out companies of soldiers with machine guns, who fired mercilessly upon the rioters, killing many, and by executive order the wine cellars were invaded by committees with hatchets, who smashed the bottles or blew them up with dynamite. Companies of Red Guards, Disciplined and well-paid, were on duty at the headquarters of the ward Soviets day and night, replacing the old militar. In all quarters of the city, small elective revolutionary tribunals were set up by the workers and soldiers to deal with petty crime. The great hotels, where the speculators still did a thriving business, were surrounded by red guards, and the speculators thrown into jail. See Appendix 11, Section 8. Alert and suspicious, the working class of the city constituted itself a vast spy system, through the servants prying into bourgeois households and reporting all information to the Military Revolutionary Committee, which struck with an iron hand, unceasing. In this way was discovered the monarchist plot led by former Duma member Purishkovich and a group of nobles and officers who had planned an officer's uprising, and had written a letter inviting Kaladin to Petrograd. See Appendix 11, Section 9. In this way was unearthed the conspiracy of the Petrograd cadets, who were sending money and recruits to Kaladin. Neratov, frightened at the outburst of popular fury provoked by his flight, returned and surrendered the secret treaties to Trotsky, who began their publication in Pravda, scandalizing the world. Graphic, Bolshevik order, a proclamation of the committee to fight against pogroms, attached to the Petrograd Soviet. For translation, see Appendix 11, Section 11. The restrictions on the press were increased by a degree. See Appendix 11, Section 10, making advertisements a monopoly of the official government newspaper. At this, all the other papers suspended publication as a protest, or disobeyed the law and were closed. Only three weeks later did they finally submit. Still the strike of the ministries went on, still the sabotage of the old officials, the stoppage of normal economic life, 
Behind Smolny was only the will of the vast, unorganized popular masses, and with them the Council of People's Commissars dealt, directing revolutionary mass action against its enemies. In eloquent proclamations, see Appendix 11, Section 12, couched in simple words and spread over Russia, Lenin explained the revolution, urged the people to take the power into their own hands, by force to break down the resistance of the propertied classes, by force to take over the institutions of government, revolutionary order, revolutionary discipline, strict accounting and control, no strikes, no loafing. Graphic. Appeal of the Petrograd Soviet, the Petrograd Council of Professional Unions, and the Petrograd Council of Factory Shop Committees, to the workers of Petrograd, urging them to work hard and not to strike. For translation, see Appendix 11, Section 13. On the 20th of November, the Military Revolutionary Committee issued a warning. The rich classes oppose the power of the Soviets, the government of workers, soldiers and peasants. Their sympathizers halt the work of the employees of the government and the Duma, incite strikes in the banks, try to interrupt communication by the railways, the post and the telegraph. We warn them they are playing with fire. The country and the army are threatened with famine. To fight against it, the regular functioning of all services is indispensable. The workers' and peasants' government is taking every measure to assure the country and the army that all is necessary. Opposition to these measures is a crime against the people. We warn the rich classes and their sympathizers that, if they do not cease their sabotage and their provocation in halting the transportation of food, they will be the first to suffer. They will be deprived of the right of receiving food. All the reserves which they possess will be requisitioned. The property of the principal criminals will be confiscated. We have done our duty in warning those who play with fire. We are convinced that in case decisive measures become necessary, we shall be solidly supported by all workers, soldiers and peasants. On the 22nd of November, the walls of the city were placarded with a sheet headed Extraordinary Communication. The Council of People's Commissars has received an urgent telegram from the staff of the Northern Front. There must be no further delay. Do not let the army die of hunger. The armies of the Northern Front have not received a crust of bread now for several days, and in two or three days they will not have any more biscuits, which are being doled out to them from reserve supplies until now never touched. Already, Delegates from all parts of the front are talking of a necessary removal of part of the army to the rear, foreseeing that in a few days there will be a headlong flight of the soldiers, dying from hunger, ravaged by the three years' war in the trenches, sick, insufficiently clothed, barefooted, driven mad by superhuman misery. The Military Revolutionary Committee brings this to the notice of the Petrograd garrison and the workers of Petrograd. The situation at the front demands the most urgent and decisive measures. Meanwhile, the higher functionaries of the government institutions, banks, railroads, post and telegraph, are on strike and impeding the work of the government in supplying the front with provisions. Each hour of delay may cost the life of thousands of soldiers. 
the counter-revolutionary functionaries are the most dishonest criminals towards their hungry and dying brethren on the front. The Military Revolutionary Committee gives these criminals a last warning. In event of the least resistance or opposition on their part, the harshness of the measures which will be adopted against them will correspond to the seriousness of their crime. The masses of workers and soldiers responded by a savage tremor of rage which swept all of Russia. In the capital, the government and bank employees got out hundreds of proclamations and appeals. See Appendix 11, Section 14. Protesting, defending themselves, such as this one. To the attention of all citizens, the state bank is closed. Why? Because the violence exercised by the Bolsheviki against the state bank has made it impossible for us to work. The first act of the People's Commissars was to demand 10 million rubles, and on November the 27th they demanded 25 millions, without any indication as to where this money was to go. We functionaries cannot take part in plundering the people's property. We stopped work. Citizens, the money in the state bank is yours, the people's money, acquired by your labour, your sweat and blood. Citizens, save the people's property from robbery and us from violence and we shall immediately resume work. Employees of the State Bank From the Ministry of Supplies, the Ministry of Finance, from the Special Supply Committee, declarations that the Military Revolutionary Committee made it impossible for the employees to work, appeals to the population to support them against Smolny, but the dominant worker and soldier did not believe them. It was firmly fixed in the popular mind that the employees were sabotaging, starving the army, starving the people. In the long bread lines, which has formerly stood in the iron winter streets, it was not the government which was blamed, as it had been under Kerensky, but the Chinovinki, the saboteurs, for the government was their government. Their Soviets and the functionaries of the ministries were against it. At the centre of all this opposition was the Duma and its militant organ, the Committee for Salvation, protesting against all the decrees of the Council of People's Commissars, voting again and again not to recognise the Soviet government, openly cooperating with the new counter-revolutionary government set up at Mogilev. On the 17th of November, for example, the Committee for Salvation addressed all municipal governments, Zemenstvoz, and all democratic and revolutionary organizations of peasants, workers, soldiers, and other citizens. In these words, do not recognize the government of the Bolsheviki and struggle against it. Form local committees for salvation of country and revolution who will unite all democratic forces so as to aid the All-Russian Committee for Salvation in the tasks which it has set itself. Meanwhile, the elections for the Constituents' Assembly in Petrograd, see Appendix 11, Section 15, gave an enormous plurality to the Bolsheviki, so that even the Mensheviki internationalists pointed out that the Duma ought to be re-elected, as it no longer represented the political composition of the Petrograd population. At the same time, floods of resolutions from workers' organizations, from military units, 
even from the peasants in the surrounded country, poured in upon the Duma, calling it counter-revolutionary, Kornilovitz, and demanding that it resign. The last days of the Duma were stormy, with the bitter demands of the municipal workers for decent living wages and the threat of strikes. On the 23rd, a formal decree of the Military Revolutionary Committee dissolved the Committee for Salvation. On the 29th, the Council of People's Commissars ordered the dissolution and re-election of the Petrograd City Duma. In view of the fact that the Central Duma of Petrograd, elected September the 2nd, has definitely lost the right to represent the population of Petrograd, being in complete disaccord with its state of mind and its aspirations, and in view of the fact that the personnel of the Duma majority, although having lost all political following, continues to make use of its prerogatives to resist in a counter-revolutionary manner the will of the workers, soldiers and peasants to sabotage and obstruct the normal work of the government, the Council of People's Commissars considered it its duty to invite the population of the capital to pronounce judgment on the policy of the organ of municipal autonomy. To this end, the Council of People's Commissars resolves 1. To dissolve the Municipal Duma, the dissolution to take effect November thirtieth, 1917. 2. All functionaries, elected or appointed by the present Duma, shall remain at their posts and fulfil the duties confided to them until their places shall be filled by representatives of the new Duma. 3. All municipal employees shall continue to fulfil their duties. Those who leave the service of their own accord shall be considered discharged. 4. The new elections for the Municipal Duma of Petrograd are fixed for December the 9th, 1917. 5. The Municipal Duma of Petrograd shall meet December the 11th, 1917 at 2 o'clock. 6. Those who disobey this decree, as well as those who intentionally harm or destroy the property of the municipality, shall be immediately arrested and brought before the revolutionary tribunals. The Duma met defiantly, passing resolutions to the effect that it would defend its position to the last drop of its blood, and appealing desperately to the population to save their own elected city government. But the population remained indifferent or hostile. On the 31st, Mayor Schreider and several members were arrested, interrogated and released. That day and the next the Duma continued to meet, interrupted frequently by Red Guards and sailors, who politely requested the assembly to disperse. At the meeting of December the 2nd an officer and some sailors entered the Nikolai Hall while a member was speaking, and ordered the members to leave or force would be used. They did so, protesting to the last, but finally ceding to violence. The new Duma, which was elected ten days later, and for which the moderate socialists refused to vote, was almost entirely Bolshevik. There remained several centres of dangerous opposition, such as the republics of Ukraine and Finland, which were showing definitely anti-Soviet tendencies. 
Both at Helsingfors and at Kiev the governments were gathering troops which could be depended upon, and entering upon campaigns of crushing Bolshevism and of disarming and expelling Russian troops. The Ukrainian Rada had taken command of all southern Russia, and was furnishing Kaladin reinforcements and supplies. Both Finland and Ukraine were beginning secret negotiations with the Germans, and were promptly recognized by the Allied governments, which loaned them huge sums of money, joining with the propertied classes to create counter-revolutionary centers of attack upon Soviet Russia. In the end, when Bolshevism had conquered in both these countries, the defeated bourgeoisie called in the Germans to restore them to power. But the most formidable menace to the Soviet government was internal and two-headed, the Kaladin movement and the staff at Moliglev, where General Dukonin had assumed command. Graphic. Proclamation of the Commission of Public Education attached to the City Duma concerning the strike of school teachers just before the Christmas holidays. The Duma had been re-elected and was composed almost entirely of Bolsheviki. For translation, see Appendix 11, Section 17. The ubiquitous Muravivov was appointed commander of the war against the Cossacks, and a Red Army was recruited from among the factory workers. Hundreds of propagandists were sent to the Don. The Council of People's Commissars issued a proclamation to the Cossacks. See Appendix 11, Section 16, explaining what the Soviet government was, how the property classes, the Chinovinki, landlords, bankers, their allies, the Cossack princes, landowners and generals, were trying to destroy the revolution and prevent the confiscation of their wealth by the people. On November 27th, the Committee of Cossacks came to Smolny to see Trotsky and Lenin. They demanded if it were true that the Soviet government did not intend to divide the Cossack lands among the peasants of Great Russia. No, answered Trotsky. The Cossacks deliberated for a while. Well, they asked, does the Soviet government intend to confiscate the estates of our great Cossack landowners and divide them amongst the working Cossacks? To this, Lenin replied, that, he said, is for you to do. We shall support the working Cossacks in all their actions. The best way to begin is to form Cossack Soviets. You will be given representation at Tsaika, and then it will be your government too. The Cossacks departed, thinking hard. Two weeks later, General Kaladin received a deputation from his troops. Will you? they asked promised to divide the great estates of the Cossack landlords amongst the working Cossacks. Only over my dead body, responded Kaladin. A month later, seeing his army melt away before his eyes, Kaladin blew out his brains, and the Cossack movement was no more. Meanwhile, at Mogilev were gathered the Otsaika, the moderate socialist leaders, from Avenkentsev to Chernov, the active chiefs of the old army committees and the reactionary officers. The staff steadily refused to recognize the Council of People's Commissars. It had united about it the Deaf Battalions, the Knights of St. George and the Cossacks of the Front, and was in close and secret touch with the Allied military attaches and with the Kaladin movement and the Ukrainian Rada. 
The Allied governments had made no reply to the peace decree of November the 8th, in which the Congress of Soviets had asked for a general armistice. On November 20th, Trotsky addressed a note to the Allied ambassadors. See Appendix 11, Section 18. I have the honor to inform you, Mr. Ambassador, that the All-Russian Congress of Soviets, on November the 8th, constituted a new government of the Russian Republic, in the form of the Council of People's Commissars. The president of this government is Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. The direction of foreign affairs has been entrusted to me, People's Commissar for Foreign Affairs. In drawing your attention to the text, approved by the All-Russian Congress, of the proposition for an armistice and a democratic peace without annexations or indemnities, based on the right of self-determination of the peoples, I have the honour to request you to consider that document as a formal proposal of an immediate armistice on all fronts, and the opening of immediate peace negotiations, a proposal which the authorised government of the Russian Republic addresses at the same time to all the belligerent peoples and their governments. Please accept, Mr. Ambassador, the profound assurance of the esteem of the Soviet government toward your people, who cannot but wish for peace, like all the other peoples exhausted and drained by this unexampled butchery. The same night the Council of People's Commissars telegraphed to General Dukonin. The Council of People's Commissars considers it indispensable without delay to make a formal proposal of armistice to all the powers, both enemy and allied, a declaration conforming to this decision has been sent by the Commissar for Foreign Affairs to the representatives of the Allied Powers at Petrograd. The Council of People's Commissars orders you, Citizen Commander, to propose to the enemy military authorities immediately to cease hostilities and enter into negotiations for peace. In charging you with the conduct of these preliminary poor parlours, the Council of People's Commissars orders you 1. To inform the Council by direct wire immediately of any and all steps in the poor parlours with the representatives of the enemy armies. 2. Not to sign the Act of Armistice until it has been passed upon by the Council of People's Commissars. The Allied Ambassadors received Trotsky's note with contemptuous silence accompanied by anonymous interviews in the newspapers, full of spite and ridicule. The order to Dukonin was characterized openly as an act of treason. As for Dukonin, he gave no sign. On the night of November the 22nd, he was communicated with by telephone, and asked if he intended to obey the order. Dukonin answered that he could not, unless it animated from a government sustained by the army and the country. By telegraph he was immediately dismissed from the post of Supreme Commander, and Kirilenko appointed in his place. Following his tactics of appealing to the masses, Lenin sent a radio to all regimental, divisional and corps committees, to all soldiers and sailors of the army and fleet, acquainting them with Dukonin's refusal, and ordering that the regiments on the front shall elect delegates to begin negotiations with the enemy detachments opposite their positions. On the 23rd, the military attaches of the Allied nations, 
acting on instructions from their governments, presented a note to de Conin, in which he was solemnly warned not to violate the conditions of the treaties concluded between the powers of the intent. The note went on to say that if a separate armistice with Germany were concluded, that act would result in the most serious consequences to Russia. This communication de Conin at once sent out to all the soldiers' committees. Next morning Trotsky made another appeal to the troops, characterizing the note of the Allied representatives as a flagrant interference in the internal affairs of Russia, and a bold attempt to force by threats the Russian army and the Russian people to continue the war in execution of the treaties concluded by the Tsar. From Smolny poured out proclamation after proclamation. See Appendix 11, Section 19. Denouncing Dukonin and the counter-revolutionary officers about him. Denouncing the reactionary politicians gathered at Mogilev. Rousing, from one end of the thousand-mile front to the other, millions of angry, suspicious soldiers. And at the same time, Kirilenko, accompanied by three detachments of fanatical sailors, set out for the Stavka breathing threats of vengeance, see Appendix 11, Section 20, and received by the soldiers everywhere with tremendous ovations, a triumphal progress. The Central Army Committee issued a declaration in favour of Dukonin, and at once 10,000 troops moved upon Mogilev. On December the 2nd, the garrison of Mogilev rose and seized the city, arresting Dukonin and the Army Committee, and going out with victorious red banners to meet the new supreme commander. Kirilenko entered Mogilev the next morning to find a howling mob gathered about the railway car in which Dukonin had been imprisoned. Krilenko made a speech in which he implored the soldiers not to harm Dukonin, as he was to be taken to Petrograd and judged by the Revolutionary Tribunal. When he had finished, suddenly Dukonin himself appeared at the window as if to address the throng, but with a savage roar the people rushed the car, and falling upon the old general, dragged him out and beat him to death on this platform. So ended the revolt of the Stavka. Immensely strengthened by the collapse of the last important stronghold of hostile military power in Russia, the Soviet government began with confidence the organization of the state. Many of the old functionaries flocked to its banner, and many members of other parties entered the government's service. The financially ambitious, however, were checked by the decree on salaries of government employees, fixing the salaries of the people's commissars, the highest, at 500 rubles, about $50 a month. The strike of government employees, led by the Union of Unions, collapsed, deserted by the financial and commercial interests which had been backing it. The bank clerks returned to their jobs. With the decree on the nationalization of banks, the formation of the Supreme Council of People's Economy, the putting into practical operation the land decree in the villages, the democratic reorganization of the army, and the sweeping changes in all branches of the government and of life, with all these, effective only by the will of the masses of workers, soldiers, and peasants, slowly began, with many mistakes and hitches, the moulding of proletarian Russia. Not by compromise with the propertied classes, or with the other political leaders, not by conciliating the old government mechanism, 
did the Bolsheviki conquer the power. Nor by the organized violence of a small clique. If the masses all over Russia had not been ready for insurrection, it must have failed. The only reason for Bolshevik success lay in their accomplishing the vast and simple desires of the most profound strata of the people, calling them to the work of tearing down and destroying the old, and afterward, in the smoke of falling ruins, cooperating with them to erect the framework of the new. End of chapter 11, part 2 Recording by Richard Beck